Uh, today, we bring to close the uh, series, Reform, uh, the Reformation and how it's impacted us here 500 years later. And we started by remembering, as you might recall, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, um, 95 points of discussion on the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And this certainly did lead to much discussion. And it led, led really to a, a revolution, a reformation, uh, which brought forth the protesters or the Protestant denomination of which we stand in today. And we've been talking about for the last several weeks. And this morning, as we come to our last message in our fifth sola, I'd like to read and look at a scripture from Psalm. Psalm chapter 115. So if you have your Bibles there, if you would turn to Psalm chapter 115, there are pews or Bibles there in the pews. And if you need one, you can take it home with you. And we also will have the scripture, of course, up on the screen for you to read. Psalm 115, verse 1 goes like this. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their gods are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, how it speaks to us. Lord, we just ask now that it would speak to us in personal ways. Lord, that we may be hearers of your word and doers and bring you honor and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, How Now Shall We Live, Charles Colson tells a story. And it's, it's, it's a real parable. It's a parable, but it's based on a really what he saw everyday life there at his community. In fact, him and his wife had noticed in their community in Florida that things were changing a few years ago. They noticed that more and more retirees were moving into their community. They also noticed that they just weren't any retirees, but they were well-to-do, affluent retirees. And they were attracted, of course, by the beautiful weather, the beautiful palm trees, um, but the gated communities, the manicured golf courses, and the fine restaurants. And so these folks were moving in to live out the American dream. You know what that is? No worries, no work, and golf every day. <laughs> Some of you may have had that dream or still have that dream. No worries, no work, and golf every day. But in the midst of that, Colson would notice a few things. And he noticed one predictable pattern. And he told the story as through a man that he called Charlie. And he says, Charlie would have this predictable pattern every day in this retirement community, this living out the American dream. He would wake up and he would head to the golf course. 
At the end of that golf course, he'd end up, the golf round, he'd end up at the 19th hole where him and his golfing buddies would have a few relaxing drinks. And then he would head home and he would scan the Wall Street Journal. Then he'd take a nap. And after the nap was done, he'd get up and he'd go to his, his closet. He would find that newest expensive um, jackets and and, and pants that he had purchased, you know, those, those crazy colored jackets and the checkered pants that you wear in retirement, you know, that it was so unlike what he had worn, the pinstripes that he'd worn every day at his job. And he would then go and, and he would join the cocktail hour that today was going to be at the, at the club, the Hewitts were hosting and they would go in and, and it would be the same thing day after day after day. Just, just a different place for the cocktail hour. One day it might be at the club. Another day it might be at a home. And different people would take turns day after day after day of hosting. And it would go on and he started to notice this pattern. But after a cycle or two, he began to little get a little discontented. In fact, he started to notice patterns, not just in what he was doing, but even in the conversations. He was, they would stand around and they would talk. And, you know, they would talk. First of all, they'd complain about taxes. He said they would, they would talk about the new neighbors that were moving in. They'd complain about the yard people and the plumbers. And, of course, they would talk about the weather. Deep conversation. You know, great day today, wasn't it? Charlie, ah, a little, little humid for me, but not bad. And he said, it started to, he started to notice this. And, and as, as he noticed this, his enthusiasm for golf started to wane, which he never thought would ever happen. <laughs> golf every day of his life was his dream come true. He would find himself as he scanned the Wall Street Journal of just longing and, and thinking back and Longing for those days where not only he had to read the Wall Street Journal, but maybe even he was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Those were the days. And then he would kind of long for those days where he'd get up in the morning and he'd put on a suit and he'd head into the office and get busy to work. Colson ends that story with this. He says, it's usually only about six months, maybe a year, before disillusionment sets in. Charlie is no longer interested in talking about books or current events. The banal cocktail chatter has hollowed out his brain. Besides, he's drinking too much, and his memory is slipping. He's short-tempered and easily angered, particularly by incompetent plumbers and yard people. When someone swings a door, car door open and recklessly dings his new Mercedes, he gets really depressed. He begins to wonder how many golf games he has left before he dies. In fact, thoughts like that begin to wake him up in the middle of the night. Colson goes on to say, sadly, I know a lot of Charlies. Once vital, productive people who have deteriorated into heavy drinking bores. They long for a sense of fulfillment and dignity that no amount of pleasure can provide. He closes with this. He says, the fact is, men and women cannot live without purpose. Men and women cannot live without purpose. We see that addressed in what we know as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question and answer 
to this catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We could say that, what is the chief purpose of man? Why, why were we put here and why are we still here? And this, this Westminster Catechism, this is a shorter catechism, it was, a, it was a document drawn up about 120 years after the beginning of the Reformation. It was drawn up by about 120 men who had gathered in Westminster and it was supposed to be an attempt to reconcile the Church of England to the Church of Scotland. You see, differences had come up between them and they were trying to reconcile them. And so as they were putting the Westminster Catechism together, they came up with this shorter catechism that was supposedly going to be understandable by, by children and some of those maybe with, with less educated and, and less intellect, that, that they could even understand it. And this first question has been probably the most famous words in, in question and answer from that catechism. It simply says this, what is the chief end of man? What, what's our purpose? What are we here for? And it says that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That catechism written about a hundred and some years after the beginning of the Reformation really reflects the final sola that we want to talk about today. The fifth sola that, that reflects this catechism simply says, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Some folks have said this is the heart and the soul of the Reformation. After all, God is a God of glory. And he calls us within his glory to worship and to serve and to give glory and honor to him alone. But it's interesting as we think about God being a God of glory. What is glory? I, I started looking definitions that we could put up a quick definition here. And, and you know, that's, it's hard to find, especially to find uh, God's glory, to find a way of putting into words that everybody agrees on because it's kind of like beauty. It's kind of like beauty. You, you see it, you recognize it, but boy, it's hard to describe. In fact, one famous author and pastor, John Piper, says this. He says it's impossible, impossible to define the glory of God. It's impossible to find the glory. That's interesting. He says that, but then I found several places where he tried. <laughs> In fact, one place right after he said this, he said this as a definition of the glory of God. He says, the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Did you get that? <laughs> There's going to be a test in 15 minutes. <laughs> What's John Piper's, what's John Piper's uh, definition of God's glory? It's, it's this, the outward radiance of his intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Well, that's one definition of God's glory. Another evangelist that you may be aware of, David Wilkerson, he says this, no man can rightly define glory. No man can rightly define glory. Of course, in the next sentence, he tries. He says this, glory is the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Others have said similar, God's glory is the beauty of his spirit. 
the beauty of his spirit. Another says God's glory is the external manifestation of his spirit. But, you know, as we look at this, we see, we see God's glory really in two realms. First of all is what I guess is we refer to as his internal glory. God is just glorious in and of himself. Even, even Piper said in his definition, he says, there's an intrinsic worth in God. There's an intrinsic worth. There's a beauty. There's, a, there's, there's something about him that Wilkerson says is the fullness it's, it's, this, it's this God that, 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 that is full of glory that we can't quite define what that glory is, but we know it when we see it. Which is why the second aspect of God's glory is so important. It's the external manifestation of his glory. I don't know if you remember, but it was a verse in, or a passage in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses says to God, hey God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God did his best Jack Nicholson imitation. And he says, you can't handle my glory. <laughs> you, you can't handle my glory. In fact, he says there, I'm going I'm to place you in a safe place. I'm going to put you in a cleft of that rock. I'm going to cover you when I go by. My glory is so great, so beyond description, so unimaginable. You can't handle it. That's the glory of God. But yet, but yet we, see, we see evidences of that every day. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at, we look at his, his creation and we say, wow, what a glorious God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Isaiah chapter 6 he sees God in a vision. He sees he's been brought into the presence of God in this vision. And he looks up and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he, cry, he hears the words crying out from those around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The next words are the whole earth is full of his glory. We see evidences of God's glory in his creation. We see evidences of God's glory in his world. I see evidences of God's glory in the faces of individuals who are created in his image. God's glory is all around us. So why is this controversial? <laughs> I guess the question I was wondering, why is this controversial? We all believe God's glory is, is unimaginable, it's undescribable, it's almost really hard to define. And yet, and we live and we serve for his glory. What's the big deal? Why, why, why did this need to be a sola? Well, it's because... Other things compete for the glory that should go to God. Luther did not believe in any theology that brought glory to the sinner or to the church. And in that day, the church stepped into a role of receiving glory that was due only to God. And when, when we would do our acts of righteousness, we would step into a place of deserving glory and God is the only one who deserved glory. It was important to the reformers, and it's important to us today that we don't do anything that detracts from God's glory. We don't want in any way rob God of glory. Let's do him. In fact, in, in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my glory to another. And so we have this soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone.
And that's what the psalmist understood in Psalm 115, verse 1, when he wrote these words. He says this, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. But so many things try to sneak in and steal the glory that belongs to God. You know, we're, we're great at, at giving glory to people, aren't we? Or, or giving glory and honor. I, I looked up this week, I just typed in on Google, how many award shows are on TV? <laughs> and I come with this, these lists and lists and lists of award shows that are on TV. We, we want to give glory and honor each other for all the things that we've done. There was like 50 almost that have been over the last five years. You know them, the Grammys, the, the Oscars, the ESPYs, the Golden Globes, and it goes on and on and on and on. I think there's probably even an award show for the best award show, something like that. It's got to be. Um, but, but we just, we love to give honor and we love to give glory. It even happens with churches and with pastors. We, we elevate people. We elevate celebrity. You don't have to worry about that here. My wife keeps me humble. <laughs> she says to me many, many times before I get up here to preach, remember, it's not about you. Remember, it's not about you. Remember, when I tell her, when I run by a story by her, say, should I use this story? And sometimes she'll say, use it. Sometimes she'll say, remember, it's not about you. <laughs> That's the way it is. It's, we, 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 we worship and we, we, we worship God, but so many things we also tend to place in positions of praise, positions of worship. And it makes our hollow, kind of sound hollow, our praise and worship of God. The psalmist continues in verse 2. He says this, Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Here, the psalmist is drawing a very distinct comparison. He says, right now, here, there's this group, and they're over here, these other nations. They're saying, where's, where's the God of Israel? Where are they? And he says, take a look at our God. Our God is not only glorious, he's sitting in heaven, he's created the world, and he does whatever he pleases. By the way, what's your God up to? Their God are made of silver and gold. They're made by human hands. Sounds kind of silly to compare the two, doesn't it? But this, is, this was a battle for Israel. From the beginning, this was a battle that they endured all the time. They came out of Egypt. God had delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea. They get to the foot, the foot of the mountain, and, and, and what do they want to do? Let's make ourselves a god. Let's throw in gold, and let's see what comes out. And out comes this golden calf that they, 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 they cast it. And, and this is a god. Worship him. He's the one that brought us out of Israel. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. And they go, and they still they still hear the, the traction from their neighbors. You know, this is, says the, the nations around them are saying, where's your God? The same way they're looking around and they're saying, wow, that's a pretty good looking God you got over there. Kind of like that God. That's shinier than my God. You know, over here, 
you worship that God there, and, and it's raining on your field. You got food. I wonder, how do I get one of those gods? Honey, do you think we can get one of those gods and stick it on our manual? No, no, we don't, we don't have the money for that kind of God. Oh, yeah, we do. We always got money for that. <laughs> Whoops, we're talking about Israel, right? Not us. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. The, the, the call of those around us, serve our gods. Check out our gods. And it's the Lord that pulls us in and it pulled Israel in and it still pulls us in today to say, ah, you know, I'll give glory to my God, but, you know, there's some other gods out there that look pretty good, pretty appetizing. They fill a need that I have in my life. They fill a need of, to, they, they give me pride, they give me joy, they give me satisfaction. But their idols are silver and gold and made by human hands. It's been said that our hearts are factory idols. Our hearts are factory idols. And I look around, it's hard to see, say that's not true. As we, as we elevate so many things, we give ourselves to them, we glorify them, and we place God on the shelf as another idol or another God. Psalmist goes on in this verse five. He says this, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound without their throat. Utter astonishment, utter astonishment that, that they would worship a handmade object who can't feel, speak, touch, smell, any of that. But it's been a problem. In fact, one of the more interesting passages regarding idols and their worthlessness is found in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah is writing to the exiles. And in there he gives almost like a parable. And he, he says, you're, you're, you foolish, foolish people. He said, for example, the, back, the blacksmith. The blacksmith gets his tools out. He bought his tools. He sharpens his tools. He, 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 he molds these, these idols with all of his strength. He puts everything into it. It's his sweat. He, he's hungry. He's thirsty. He's tired. And he does all of the work. And then you worship what he's produced. Then he goes on and says, There's, it's also like the guy who, who plants a tree by the water in the forest where it'll get, where it'll get watered and it'll grow. And then a time comes, he goes out and he selects the tree. And he cuts down the tree. And then he cuts up the tree. And then he takes some of the wood of the tree and he starts burning it for a fire so he can feed himself and he can warm himself. And with what's left over, he says, what do I do with this? Ha, huh, I think I'll make a God and worship it. How, how foolish can that be? Isaiah 44.10 says, but who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? But yet, we're still battling it. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul wrote this in Romans 1.25. These folks, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He says they exchanged the, the truth of God for a lie. 
by worshiping created things rather than creator. And then the psalmist closes this in Psalm chapter, in, in verse 8 of 115. He says this, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in him. Well, we've heard in Psalm and we've heard in Isaiah 44 that these gods are lifeless, they're useless, they're powerless, and they're ineffectual. But they're attractive. It's attractive to follow after things that are demanding glory that detract, take away, rob, and steal the glory that goes to God. George Beale, an author, wrote a, wrote a book. In fact, the title of his book is We Become What We Worship. We become what we worship. He says, when, when people, what people revere, they will resemble. You see this in your children all the time, don't you? I remember as a young man, a very young man, preteen, preteen, I remember on a Sunday afternoon or during the week, I'd go out into my backyard and my, I had an old shirt that I had gotten and I'd kind of ripped off the sleeves and I got a magic marker and I wrote on the back of it, Grove and number 10. You know why? The cornerback of our high school football team was Bob Grove. And I wanted to be like him. And I wanted to resemble him. So I'd get out there and I'd, get, I'd be practicing. And I'd go, and I'd get back and grow back to pass. And touchdown, yeah, go crazy and all this. And I'd, I'd, I would want to become like him. I want to resemble him. I want, I want to give glory to him. I remember then, I've told this before, as a teenager, uh, I was starting to play basketball and was enjoying basketball and got a chance to go to the Pete Maravich, and if you know Pete Maravich, uh, basketball camp in Pennsylvania, Pete was there. I got, to, I got to be with Pete and play with Pete Maravich, and it was exciting, but Pete Maravich was known for being a little counterculture. First of all, he would, he would throw behind his back and do a lot of crazy things, which was fun until you got into a real game with your real coach. <laughs> And the passes didn't go where they were supposed to go. But the other thing he would do is he, instead of pulling up his socks like everybody else, he had baggy socks. So they, they would fall down and they'd, be, and they'd just be. And so be going in, even though I had perfectly good socks, I'd pull them down. So I had baggy socks. So when I passed behind my back and I'm trying to let my hair grow like Pete Maravich and be like him. And, and so we know what it's like. You become like what you worship. You become what that which you, which you adore or you love or you give value to. You ascribe worth to. We become like them. But there's a flip side to that. There's a flip side. I just gave you the negative. What about the positive side to that? If we give glory to God, if we honor God, if we worship him and him only, the goal is that we become more and more like him. You become like what or who you worship. How can we know what God's like? Oh, he gave us a great example. He gave us a great example. Next week, we're going to start Advent. You know how Advent starts? The angels appearing to the shepherds, and they say, glory to God in the highest. 
Peace on earth, goodwill to men. I've got great news. God is going to receive glory, and it's going to be through a baby. And he's coming, and he's coming soon. Then near the end of his life, the night before he was crucified, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, and he says, among other things, I have brought glory to you. I lived my life to bring glory to you. That's the example that, 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 that the Bible gives us. That's the example that Jesus gives us. In fact, Jesus lived and died to glorify God. Can we do that? Can we do that? He said in Matthew 5, verse 7, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the practical side of the Reformation. This is a side that says, yes, we give God glory for what he's done for our salvation, for, may, for giving us salvation by grace, through faith, through, through Jesus Christ. But there's a practical side to it now. There's a practical side that says that we live out then. We live out our faith. We live out this, this, this grace that God has called us into by letting our light shine and glorifying him. We live it out day by day, moment by moment, wherever we go. We give him glory for salvation, but also give him glory by the way we live our lives. Like we live our lives as if we are giving glory to God because we are giving glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do, everything. If you would have access to many of the manuscripts of Johann Sebastian Bach, you would, if you went all the way through and got to the bottom, at the bottom of his manuscripts, you would see SDG. SDG. And when people would say, what does that stand for? He would say, that's Latin for soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. You know, Luther is a practical side to him. Luther not only writes about our, our theology, but Luther had a well-developed theology of vocation. How we live out our lives day by day. How we can serve God in our jobs. How we give glory to him wherever we do, whether we're eating, drinking, whatever we're doing, we give honor and glory to him. Luther said it this way for our deeds. He says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. He did everything for your salvation, but your neighbor needs to see the glory of God through your works. That's what was wrong when, 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 when um, Luther started looking at this monastic system. The monks were doing great good works. They were doing hard good works. They would, they would, but they were doing it in the basement of the monastery or in the towers or some room hidden. Well, they, what good was that doing God? He didn't need their good works. And what good would that do anybody else? Luther would say, get out in the streets and do your good works so that they can glorify God. Do whatever you do to glorify God. Let your light shine to glorify God. You see, the Reformation is really, in the end, about putting God in the proper place that he deserves and putting everything else in its proper place. 
It's God who receives the glory only. Because he is revealed in his word, his only authoritative word to us. That we can stand in his grace provided freely. And we can accept it by faith alone because of what Christ has done for us. When that's in the proper place, all these other things take their proper place. Our good deeds, yes, they're good and they're, they're, they're to praise God, but they're not gonna save us. But we, we have these good deeds because we do everything we can to bring honor and glory to God 100% of the time. Soli Deo Gloria. Very simple, isn't it? The, the Reformation is five simple points. But yet, over 500 years, we've, we've confused it a lot. In fact, there's not just one Protestant denomination. You may have noticed that. There are many, and we disagree with where to cross the T's and dot the I's in so many cases. But when it comes down to these five souls, we agree. We agree that through Jesus Christ and through him only, we have salvation. And it's nothing that we've did. We are not going to take away. We are not going to steal from God's glory. We're going to receive and believe, and we're going to serve. And that's what Luther was all about. When you give all the glory to God, when you give all the glory to God, then you know what? You can enjoy him forever. And that forever starts today. That's not a, you can start enjoying him after you kick the bucket. This is, you can enjoy God forever starting today. That's the good news. When Jesus Christ is doing the work, Luther was also a poet and a musician. Later in life, and thinking about what this is that God has done for us and how we respond, he wrote these words. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dusk asked who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That's the second verse of what has been known by some as the battle hymn of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God. I can't think of a better way to close a series than together sing this much like Luther would have sang it in his church 500 years ago, 450 years ago. A God who loves, cares for us, reaches down, and it's through his grace only, through faith in him, that we come and serve a God who is victorious, who is a mighty fortress, who won the battle. Let's stand together and let's sing and rejoice in a mighty fortress.
Do all to the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him today. You're dismissed. You're dismissed.